This is an audio-only version of a Then and Now video. To see the full video, search Then and Now on YouTube. Enjoy. How is culture like currency? Do we collect, exchange or sell our cultural knowledge like it's cash? The sociologist Pierre Bourdieu was interested in how the organisation of culture and the social world around us could affect our individual view of the world. How we didn't just pick the culture we liked, but in some ways culture picked us, made us more or less likely to act in certain ways. For Bourdieu, facts about the world could be measured, collected and recorded, but they were also instinctively absorbed by us from a young age. They became subjectified into our own behaviour. He was interested in how these cultural and social phenomena connect us to the wider world. Our tastes, accents, styles of speaking, mannerisms and values can be the product of our social environment and our own minds. He sought the subjective dispositions within which these structures are actualised. Our preferences in art, literature or music are, in large part at least, determined by our social positions. Our family's exposure to specific cultural artefacts, our economic possibilities or the interests of the faculty of the school we attend. In the most obvious sense, an American girl attending high school today is unlikely to enjoy 16th century Mongolian folk songs. But why is this? Why are our tastes often so uniform, so predictable? Bourdieu's answer is cultural capital. He saw that if we are brought up in an aristocratic family where our friends and teachers all read the Homeric epics, then we too are more likely to attach a value to that cultural artefact. If everyone tells us these stories are good as a child, then we are, of course, more likely to value them because praise for reading them is a reward as powerful as any financial reward. Economic capital, like money, can be exchanged for other goods, but so too can cultural capital. When the aristocrat goes to school or university, he's more easily going to be able to exchange his knowledge of Homer for good relations with teachers and higher grades, which then lead to better jobs. But why is it, Bourdieu asks, that it's Homer or Shakespeare or Bach or Rembrandt that is valued more highly as cultural capital, ready to be exchanged for what he called institutional capital, grades, tests, qualifications, job experience, references... He argued that the line between these works and more distasteful cultural artefacts like soaps or pop music was largely arbitrary. The tastes of certain social groups are valued more highly than others because they confer status and exclude those who don't have the technical language or know-how to talk about them properly. This way of talking, of thinking, might be thought of as the rules of the game. If you can apply the rules, then you can become part of the club. Learning the rules, of course, takes time, connections and money, and so many are excluded from the start. Bourdieu argued that cultural capital exists in two forms. It can be embodied in our understanding and knowledge of the world, what he called our habitus, and objectified in cultural artefacts like books, records, schools, museums and galleries, etc., 
access to this objectified cultural capital and the time to be able to access it is important if the cultural capital is going to be embodied in our habitus. Imagine going to a gallery. It's free, which is great, but there's only a small plaque on the wall. You stand in front of this Picasso. You stare at it. You think about it. For it to keep your attention, you have to understand what's going on. In order for any cultural object to justify its existence, it must be appreciated in some way, even if it's just in people's minds. The more informed you are about it, the more time you can spend appreciating the cultural artefact. In the sociological study The Love of Art, Bourdieu and his colleagues interviewed visitors to museums and galleries in France. He writes that, in addition to visiting and its patterns, all visitors' behaviour and all their attitudes to works on display are directly and almost exclusively related to education, whether measured by qualifications obtained or by length of schooling. They found that, independent of wealth or class, education alone determined how long a visitor would spend in the museum or gallery. Let's go back to this Picasso. Any cultural artefact has a message, a message that can be received and decoded by a receiver. You might understand the message, you might not. You might understand it in a shallow way or a complex way or a specific way. The message, intended by the artist or otherwise, has lots of components, lots of information and related information. You might first look at the shading or colour. You might see a metaphor or wider symbolism. You might know or not know something about the artist, a bit about their lives. You might then know something about the period, the genre and the school the artist belonged to and why this particular piece is important or unimportant, influential or uninfluential. You apprehend all of this in the message. You recognise the code of the message. He writes, Someone who only knows how to divide cathedrals into Romanesque and Gothic, but all Gothic cathedrals, undifferentiated, into the same class, whereas someone with greater competence can discern stylistic differences between the primitive, classical and late periods, or even recognise the works of specific schools within each of these styles. Bourdieu argues that you can only appreciate the cultural artefact as long as your attention is drawn to it, and so, as soon as you run out of things to think about, you move on. The ability to do this is cultural capital. Again, it can be more readily exchanged at school for qualifications or at parties for new friendships or connections, and finally, for financial reward or status. Some cultural capital is valued more highly than other cultural capital. And within any type, some subset of knowledge is valued more highly than another subset. Some of this, of course, might be justified. Learning rocket science or neuroscience has a particular culture to it that is highly valued and becomes increasingly difficult to understand and learn at higher levels. And this is for a very good reason. And in many ways, Homer is justifiably valued too. Homer is culturally and socially useful. The Iliad and the Odyssey teaches ethics and morals, philosophy and rhetoric. Knowing Homer can be useful for society and so is valued more highly. But it, of course, is subjective. 
And it's when this knowledge is cut off from certain groups and classes that a problem arises. Culture can be made exclusive and inaccessible, and this often is reducible to economics. You need the time and money to learn or purchase entry and buy books. Bourdieu asks, is it surprising that the tastes and the good tastes of more cultivated individuals derive from the homogenous and homogenizing, routinized and routinizing action of the academic institution and, when all is said and done, are highly orthodox and that, as Boas noted, the thought of what we call the educated classes is controlled essentially by those ideals which have been transmitted to us by past generations. In other words, institutions and elites guard their cultural knowledge in some way. And sometimes this is justified, and sometimes it's not. Take music in its most aesthetic form. That is, stripped of any moral message or social goal. An instrumental hip-hop beat, or an orchestra playing a simple melody. What reason is there here to privilege one over the other? What makes Beethoven more respectable than LL Cool J? The field of cultural capital across society values certain types of cultural knowledge higher than other types of cultural knowledge. This evaluation is often purely arbitrary, having the effect of making sure you're one of us, as we've seen. In academia, for example, a certain style of writing, using certain language, signals that you know the rules of the game. It's not so much what you know, but the style of how you transmit it. In interviews, a certain accent is judged, often subconsciously, very quickly. If you're at a party and a circle is talking about Wagner, the ability to partake in the conversation is more likely to get you accepted by that group. But these dominant values can also be subverted. In other words, underprivileged groups don't always have to learn the rules of the dominant game, but can create new rules, a new game, a new type of cultural capital. Take hip-hop. It's commonly argued that hip-hop arose out of four main elements – DJing, MCing, breakdancing and graffiti. In other words, music, dance and fine art. In one article, ethnomusicologist Adam DePower Evans points out that graffiti grew out of a number of other elements, including urban destitution and a strong but subordinated diaspora culture. This group is unlikely to be able to afford to go to the opera or have the time to sit and read Homer. There is an alternative, though. Create new cultural capital. The common struggle and the shared strength of subordinated groups, the infusion of different cultural heritages, the uniqueness of their environment, all mean that each member of the group can recognise a shared and distinct culture. Social groups then discuss them, find meaning in them, review the merits of each piece of graffiti or each DJ set, having the effect of building their own cultural discourse in their own unique social surroundings. 
DePower writes that knowledge sources in hip-hop are wide-ranging and multifarious and are located in the processes and productions of hip-hop practices such as lyrics, rhythm and scratch sonics, graffiti pieces and lettering styles, as well as the more ephemeral dance moves, speech and body language of b-boying. New cultural forms can also borrow from existing forms to legitimise them. DePower Evans notes how Michelangelo was often cited by early hip-hop artists like Raheem and LL Cool J. Melly Mel's lyrics include, "'Cause each and every time you touch a spray paint can, Michelangelo's soul controls your hands.'" In other words, new art forms arising from unique cultural and social contexts become both objectified in the artists, musicians and dancers, and objectified in graffiti tags, events and vinyl, all being created from new circumstances and borrowing from other cultural capital. This becomes powerful. Users value this capital because it says something about the environment, socially and politically, and when a group homogenises in this way, the cultural capital becomes valued by others outside of the group, as, for example, the music spreads. In the UK, grime has slowly been entering the mainstream, with Stormzy recently playing the headline spot at Glastonbury Festival. Originating as a fringe expression of inner-city culture, grime has started to play a major role in national politics, with hashtags like Grime for Corbyn trending, and a huge spike in registrations to vote after a number of artists simultaneously encouraged their followers to do so. Now the cultural capital of grime is more likely to be exchanged into political and social capital. In other words, the common purpose of the group is more likely to be accepted by wider society. The seriousness of the art form is more likely to be accepted by the stuffy music professor, more likely to be exchanged into qualifications. Bourdieu's thought has a range of consequences and can be interpreted and applied in many ways. For me, at its core, it suggests at least two things. First, equality of access. It's not enough that museums and galleries are free, that education is widely funded and gigs are affordable. If you go to the National Gallery in London, the plaques are tiny, it's hard to learn anything. You need to be able to learn what that culture means, understand its wider context, be able to access the information required to decode the message easily. And second, the culture of economically disadvantaged groups is important, powerful, and should be emphasised, platformed, and engaged with by wider society. Cultural capital, embodied as it is over lifetimes and generations, is often more powerful than economic capital. And in many ways, Bourdieu is simply expanding on the 500-year-old adage that knowledge is power. If you like these videos, I need your help, and here's my request. If you think you get the same value from four of these videos as you do from just one cup of coffee, then please consider pledging just a dollar per video. That's three to four dollars per month to keep this channel going. You can even limit your pledge to one dollar a month, and if you pledge five dollars, I'll add your name to the credits. To those that already support Then and Now, thank you so much. This channel just wouldn't exist without you. You can also hit like, share, follow me on Twitter and Facebook, etc. All of these things really contribute to helping Then and Now grow. Thanks for watching and see you next week.